Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 349 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, every once in a while, you meet, well, actually, no, that's not true. Every once in a while, you do not meet a person like Bob Goff. <laughs> We've had the chance to get together in numerous different settings, and I've had a chance to interview him multiple times uh, on this podcast before as well. And it it's just, it's I don't even know the metaphor. It's like, this is the most fascinating conversation because uh, it's like you try to ground Bob with a question, and the next thing you know, he just you know, blast into orbit. It's it's absolutely fascinating. There is nobody I've ever met like Bob. And he's back on the podcast today. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He is a, quote, recovering lawyer. He's written a couple of books that have sold millions of copies, Love Does and Everybody Always. He's the honorary consul to the Republic of Uganda. No, we're not making that up. And he's the founder of Love Does. It's a, a nonprofit human rights organization operating in Uganda, uh, India, Nepal, Iraq, and Somalia. And uh, there's nobody like him. So we go all over the place. It's actually a very challenging interview. If you're an interviewer, you're going to have fun listening to this because Bob Bob's just everywhere. And that's what makes him so amazing. Uh, Tony and I love him. My wife, Tony, and I just love Bob and Sweet Maria. And uh, yeah, you're going to too. I know most of you probably know exactly who Bob is, but if you don't, uh, you're going to hear some stories you've never heard before, some paradigms you've never heard before. And uh, I try to pin him down on how he practiced law, which is like a lot of fun. So this is this is great. Uh, I think you're really going to love it. So I get asked all the time, Carrie, what podcast do you listen to? And one of the podcasts that I really enjoy, in fact, a leader that I've followed for many, many years is Michael Hyatt. And if you haven't yet checked out Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller's podcast, Lead to Win, I would encourage you to do it. It's one of the best podcasts out there for getting practical leadership wisdom. So Michael and Megan share from their experience of more than 40 years of professional experiences. They've been where you are. They got the insights and the strategies to help you where you need to go and where you are. Uh, today. So if you're looking for practical advice, it's not just strategies to grow your business. They got plenty of that. They're about helping you prioritize what they call the double win, where you win at work and succeed at life. It's not just about work. It's bigger than that. So if you're a leader who wants to grow without sacrificing what matters most to you, then all you have to do is search for the Lead to Win podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I listen on Overcast, by the way. I know there's like 10 of you out there who do the same thing. Subscribe to Lead to Win. You'll get weekly leadership lessons to help you build the double win. And uh, they always rank in the top business podcasts out there. So there's one to add to your arsenal this summer. Another thing to think about this summer is how you're actually going to connect with your church. Some of you are actually reopening. Some of you are not and cannot. And uh, you're like, well, how do we keep everyone connected? That's why you've got to check out ServeHQ. They provide two services, Trained Up and Huddle Up. And it is an incredibly efficient way of tracking with everybody, connecting with everyone, training everyone, and keeping your church together when it's never been harder to do that. So 
they have the ability through Trained Up and Huddle Up to send highly engaging mass video text messages and video emails, no longer controlled by an algorithm, right? So you don't have to rely on someone else to get the message to them. You can do it directly uh, through the ServeHQ apps. So your church will always be in the loop. You'll always know what's going on. Their safe chat feature lets you stay in direct contact with your people without worrying about inappropriate private communications, which actually is an issue. It's like a smart private social platform for your church members and volunteers. And ServeHQ's training feature lets you offer engaging online video courses for volunteer training, member onboarding, even Bible training, leadership training. You can use their library of over 800 videos or create your own. So check them out at servehq.church and get a free, no obligation, 14-day trial. So that's servehq.church. Get your free trial today. Well, with all that said, man, I am so excited to bring you this latest all over the place, wonderful, whimsical, powerful, man, stretching conversation with my good friend and a leader that I am so grateful to know, Bob Goff. Bob, welcome back to the podcast. It's a thrill to have you and be with you again. Oh, thanks a million. What I'm enjoying is that I'm able to see you on Skype here. It's good to see your face, yeah, buddy. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. We're looking forward to being in person again uh, soon, but we don't live in that world right now, do we? Yeah, yeah. But I'm okay with that. I think a lot of people, you know, are afraid they're going to lose their job, but I think there's a lot of people that are afraid they'll keep them. <laughs> <laughs> people, they've had three or four months uh, on their own. They're like, we're out of here. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people composing, you know, their resignation letter. I got two words for you. I quit. <laughs> Just mail that thing. <laughs> what, what have you learned in this pandemic so far? Because uh, we were chatting a little bit. You have a property in Canada and we closed our border to you. You closed your border to us. So you've been yeah, homebound. You, you broke up with me before I broke up with you. Yeah, that's true. We were first on that one, weren't we? But that's we'll get just, back together. I know we'll get back together. That's just wisdom at so many different levels. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, but one of the things that uh, we couldn't do is go to a place we love. And I think that's true for a lot of us, whether yeah. it was some work. Um, I think a lot of relationships uh, that were shallow relationships, uh, as soon as everybody got sent home, uh, they kind of drifted away. And here's what it did. It left room for deeper relationships. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a friendship for years, and I'm just so delighted that things have slowed down enough that we can actually spend some time catching up and talking about life and things that matter. And I think that's what I want to celebrate during this time, not because I'm an optimist and I'm an optimistic guy, but it's like earth through the entire sock drawer on the floor. And if we get to match up which socks fit now, <laughs> <laughs> I know your Argyle socks are tough to match with other ones, but, but to just say, okay, what's new, Bob, what's new, Carrie, what's this new thing look like? And there's all the things that we're capable of, like being a lawyer, you too, right. yeah. uh, but we decided to go straight at some point. <laughs> So, yeah, you, you call yourself a recovering lawyer. And, uh, hey, we're going to talk all about Dream Big, the framework and everything. And congratulations on the new book. It's your third, which is incredible. So for those of you watching, uh, we will get to that. But I do want to, uh, oh, let, let, yeah, let, let's start here with your law career. So um, when when we met, which was probably five or six years ago for the first time, you were busy 
extracting yourself and now call yourself a recovering lawyer. Uh, but you had a you had a very successful law career, and I think a lot of people who've read your books know the story of how you got into law school. But I'd love to know a little bit more about that chapter of your life, which was several decades, right? Practicing law. Yeah, the the biggest thing that I can remember about law school is Maria. <laughs> <laughs> I was super super busy in law school until I met sweet Maria, and then I had all the time in the world for that girl. <laughs> I, I remember she was um, uh, going to bring 10 uh, girls uh, from high school. She was a young life leader. She was going to be a work crew boss, and they were going to volunteer at this local camp. And so in a big hurry, I got 10 guys, and I just wanted to be within 10 feet of her. <laughs> and so we were doing this. It was the first night of camp, and it was back. I think they were still improving uh, pacemakers because a woman, her pacemaker stopped, and she did like face in the spaghetti. She was gone. And I knew how to do CPR. And I'm trying to get Maria to like me these days. And so even get to know my name. But I we got her going again. And I know sweet Maria was thinking, this guy is not much to look at, but he's uh, helpful in a pinch. And uh, fast forward a little bit. And uh, we just bought that camp as a family and uh, with some friends, Miles Adcox, uh, Jamie and Paulo, uh, Jamie Kern, I don't know if you bumped into her, no, but I, I don't we decided to do something really beautiful. And it started with me trying to get within 10 feet of my ambition. And my ambition, marry sweet Maria. Make wow. her sweet Maria Goff. And sometimes what happens is that a dream that you might have is a little bit uh, it's circuitous way of getting there. That's the best way I can describe law school. I just wanted to uh, like know one thing that everybody else didn't know. And I decided to be a construction lawyer. And it wasn't because Jesus was a carpenter. It was just that it was interested me. And, and then uh, after doing that for a lot of years in California, I decided to go to Washington State to yeah. be up a little bit closer to the border. And uh, so I commuted for 25 years, I flew up in the morning. I did my work. I flew home for dinner for a quarter of a century. And here's the deal. It's like that when you're raising a family, you must be present to win. <clears throat> and I think the thing that I'm learning in my own uh, journey is this idea of trying to provide for our family. Sometimes we're spending so much time trying to provide for our family that we're not providing for our family. Mm. And uh, and to remind ourselves that we're not like Maria didn't marry, you know, me because of my ability to produce money. She could have married an ATM and gotten one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually would have picked up his socks, too. Um, but uh, she wanted me to be around. And as much as I tried, I felt very distracted by the other things. Law became a distraction from some of the other things. So I, I, I hope perhaps like you, you made that transition from what you're capable of, which is practicing law, to what you feel a sense of calling to, right. which is to do those things in Matthew 25, hungry people, thirsty people, sick people, strange people, naked people, and people in jail. So well, that's what I'm spending my time doing. Classic conversation with Bob. We just covered three decades and 17 different things in five minutes, which is the <laughs> best, Bob. It's the best. <laughs> I want to I want to come back to some of them, but I want to I want to double click on some stuff. So you commuted 
three states, if I've got my geography right. You went from San Diego, past Oregon, to Washington State every day after breakfast and got home for dinner. Did you pilot your own plane or how did that work? No, it was this guy uh, called American Airlines and another guy called Alaskan Airlines. <laughs> we I know this sounds nuts, but uh, uh, bear with me. And uh, we live way out in the bush in Canada, in British Columbia. And the only way in and out is by seaplane, Correct. if you want to get there anytime yeah. soon. And, uh, and so I started a little airline. I thought, I'm a lawyer. I could start an airline. So we started this little airline. We called it Pacific Wings, not knowing that there's an airline in, Can uh, in uh, Hawaii called Pacific Wings. <laughs> I just figured if they were, you know, had a problem with that, they'd change the name and repaint their jets. So we just kept the name because I had an airline and Alaska and American had airlines, we code shared. So I didn't have to pay for tickets to fly to work and back. Is that crazy? <laughs> okay, that's no, 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 I don't even understand that. So you actually started because you can get into your cabin in Canada. So did you do most of your work for 25 years from Vancouver then from that uh, lodge? No. From Seattle, but because I had an airline, Alaska airline uh, employees could fly on my airline for free. And so I got to fly on their airline for free. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> this commute just did, it cost me like seven bucks in taxes and I ate $10 of peanuts. And so one of the things that I want to get at is this idea, if you find an ambition and my ambition was Maria, and then my ambition was to be around the family, but you also have a tug, which is a vocation, which is sometimes a law practice might take you somewhere else. I think you can find a really winsome way to do that. And I mean, if you saw what the planes that we had looked like, <laughs> they were mostly duct tape. Uh, but but one of the things that you could do is a winsome way to get there, uh, a winsome made way to make these things happen. And sometimes people let the traditional way of practicing law get in the way of a better way to practice law, the traditional way of doing plumbing or teaching or whatever kind of advocacy lights you up or pastoring. I would say, can you do it? Is there a a more fitting way, fitting in terms of how it fits, how God wired you to be. And I'm a pretty optimistic guy. And I just thought, well, let's drive that thing around the block. That's such a Bob story. It's such a, it's such a, I don't know too many people who would start their own airlines to get to work. How long would that trip take you every day? Um, Two hours, 40 minutes. They call me Mr. G at the airport. Yeah, I still, I've done two adoptions for the ticket ladies behind okay. the counter. Yeah. So I got to know him at Christmas time. You know, when you get your like peeps together, yeah. I just go to the, or the terminal. <laughs> I know like the guy, you know, everybody uh, and you're there every day, twice a day. And so they would have my ticket waiting for me. They would see sweet Maria drop me off. They'd have the ticket out and I would just go by and pick it up. That's incredible. So you did that <laughs> every day for 25 years. Now it's golf, golf rather and DeWalt right? And you specialized in construction defect litigation. Is that correct? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It seems like such a long time ago because it was such a long time ago. Uh, Danny DeWalt is smarter and better looking and everything more organized than me. And he actually lived in Seattle. And so we just commuted back and forth or I just would go up and do my thing and go home. Danny now is uh, at Pepperdine Law School where we both yeah. teach. And you lecture uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I also uh, teach, I don't know if you've heard this, but I teach a class at San Quentin. And uh, I tell my students at Pepperdine Law, don't end up in my class at San Quentin. Um, <laughs> Which is, for, for anybody who doesn't know, that is a, it's a prison, is it not? It is a penitentiary, capital P. Um, but there's a whole bunch of guys in my class. We were in a small circle of men, and we were talking about how much time is still left to be served. There's not a lot of things to talk about, so this is one thing that everybody knows. And so the average unserved term per guy, excluding me, 107 years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they got a little bit of time left on the clock. They have had some setbacks. Um, but we were talking about, we'd gone through the prison yard and everybody's like pumping weights. And I was talking about uh, the idea of like getting something off your chest. And I said, if there's something you needed to get off your chest, what would it be? And we went around and it was so beautiful as each man went through and talked about something had been separated from their families, a struggle that they've had, some shame. The last guy uh, paused and he said, you know, I've been in here for 20 years and I've told everybody for all 20 years I didn't do it. And then he stopped and he said, I did it. And I'll tell you, in that moment, he was more free than any man I've ever seen. He actually got this thing off his chest. And, and so my point is the beauty of authenticity. If we could just get authentic with ourselves. Um, your wife's written a beautiful book on marriage in, in a very authentic way. If we could do that with our work relationships, if we could do that with the people that we're married to, the children that we may have, or the the circle of friends to just keep it super real and it can be messy and all that. But I'm telling you, I am not their teacher at San Quentin. Uh, I am their student. And uh, so I, on the side, write these, I just finished a commutation <laughs> petition. We're going to find some way to get that to the government. If you can commute the sentence of one of yeah, these yeah. people. There was one guy who I think there, there's another guy that uh, was in the class, he was a member of a gang and the rival gang had killed you know, his brother, so he killed that guy. And so he spent his whole adult life uh, in San Quentin. And uh, when he got out, I was his first call. And he, he, he's never held a cell phone because he's never been outside. And so uh, he, he called me up and he said, I'm outside the wall. I'm like, buddy, tell me there's not a bunch of bed sheets tied together, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is a guy, uh, I said, how does it, like, what's your first thought, you know, on the outside of prison? And he said, you know what? I've got pockets. <laughs> like, what the heck? I thought it was going to be something, you know, really deep and profound. But I realized it was deep and profound. You can't have pockets in San Quentin mm. because you just carry around the wrong things. And I told him, be really careful about what you put in those pockets. And I think that was more words of advice to myself than to him, um, that I really want to be mindful about what I'm carrying around. Some of the guilt, some of the shame, some of the old narratives about who I used to be, or some of the lies about uh, you know, initials behind your names and all that. Um, and to say, like, who am I? And what, can I be really careful about what I'm putting in my pockets now? Do you feel like when you look back, at Bob 25 years ago, do you feel that there were certain things you believed about yourself as a young attorney that you had to walk away from? Um, you were by every account. And I don't know a lot about your legal career. Number one, there's not a lot published. Number two, you don't talk about it a lot. 
But from the few people who know a little bit about it, they say you were unbelievable as a lawyer. I mean, first of all, you freed a lot of people in your work in Uganda and around the world, et cetera, San Quentin. But, you know, if you got on the other side of Bob in a construction defect thing, it was a thing to behold. Um, talk to us about, about that season in your career, what you believed about yourself, how that's changed, and what law, practicing law for a quarter century taught you. I thought I had to win uh, all the arguments, and I mm. actually got really good at winning arguments. Um, but I just don't know if that's good advocacy. I think yeah. um, uh, what I'm seeing in the wisdom of the uh, men uh, around me and women around me that are my teachers is knowing the right arguments to lose. Mm. Never lost a case. Uh, in I heard that rumor and I didn't even want to say it because I thought that can't be true. You never lost a case. Yeah. And it's not because I'm an awesome lawyer. I'm an awesome picker. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to pick your clients. Nobody could lose. Yeah. So if there's any chance I was going to lose, I'd be like, nah. <laughs> so one of the things that I want us to do is be a little pickier about the arguments that we engage in. We don't have to mm. swing at every pitch. Not every... Uh, argument is one that you need to win. The only time I raise my voice is when I'm yodeling (laughs) (laughs) and I've never yodeled. But so one of the things I think in our advocacy is to know why we're doing what we're doing. Like, so to remember that. And strangely, what that was is my undoing as a lawyer, Uh, because at some point it pivoted to providing for my family to actually a source of fundraising because we Mm. started doing stuff overseas and you can make a lot more money taking a deposition than making cupcakes. And so I thought, well, like I'm going to actually figure out another way because I'm kind of changing. And that's when we wrote Love Does. Yeah. 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 So we'll just give all the money away, write a book and, and uh, they sold some copies and uh, ended up being the way to help make some of these other things happen. And I got all of my uh, firm together. We were in this tall building downtown in Seattle and I knew it was time to quit because I got off the elevator on the 27th floor and I walked up to the receptionist and she asked me who I was, who I was there to see. (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh. Actually, that's my name right behind you. And, uh, I realized it'd been so long. I didn't even know the people that work there. So that day I got everybody together in the biggest conference room we could. And I quit. I just said, I'm out. I gave the key. I took it off my ring. I gave it to a guy that had been working for me for a decade and a half. And I said, it's all yours. You don't owe me anything. (laughs) How many years ago was that? Was that like five years ago? Yeah, six, maybe. Yeah, Yeah. six. He said, are you kidding me? Actually, he didn't say kidding. But that was, the, <laughs> that was the import of what he was trying to, he was reaching to say. And it was a stupid financial decision, but it was an awesome new creation decision. And here's what I'm thinking. If you're listening in, what's a new creation decision? Like we, you've had this wide spot in the road that you didn't want when earth stopped spinning a little while ago. So who's new you? And I think you could do maybe what would be a courageous thing for you. And God never compares what he creates. So I would say, Find a courageous thing for you, not a courageous thing for what would be courageous for Carrie to have done or me to have done. But what's courageous for you to do? And I would say do that and see what happens. And this whole idea that God would be with us, Emmanuel, God with Mm. us. 
even in the stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense. And it's not going to end up with a great ending. You don't want to say the ending was, so I quit my job. <laughs> I quit all of my earning. And guess what? I invented like medicine. <laughs> like that didn't happen. No, I was just unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, I see you using your advocacy skills in so many inspiring ways, literally ways that have inspired millions of people. Um, How did you not lose cases? What are some of the keys to advocacy that you learned through law that obviously now you're using in life and in, in everything that you do? What are some keys to creating a great argument that can help people? Yeah, I would say, and I'm lifting this from Paul in First Peter, he said to be ready to make a defense for the hope that's within be an advocate for the hope that's within you. And a lot of people stop there and they don't read on. And it says, but to do it with kindness and respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I just think you get so much further with kindness and respect. What I'm trying to do is measure these things that I'm thinking and that reacting to other people by doing it in a kind, respectful way, what it does is it draws me back to scripture, not to my opinions, because everybody's got an opinion. They're like ears. Everybody's got a couple of them. But to say, what what if we're like kind and respectful, maybe to pause, you know, in that cartoon, when you have a thought bubble mm-hmm. filled with things, I very rarely let things get outside the thought bubble. <laughs> I, It's filled with things. I am thinking a lot but I'm not saying all the things I'm thinking. I give them a little bit of period, kind of like Paul says, like to check it against scripture, but to just pause, slow down a little bit, then give that a beat or two. Maybe keep a couple words inside the thought bubble. Uh, That's a great idea. And I mean, I see that in the stories you've told me and in your books and in talks about dealing with witch doctors in Africa and trying to help them, you know, change, or even I'm sure working with the inmates at San Quentin, trying to see them in a way that the culture doesn't see them. How would you do that? Because there's a lot of business leaders listening to this too. And they're like, okay, Bob, I'm in your old life. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm in the firm. I'm there. We're going to talk about dreaming big and escape in a minute before we're done. But how would they do that when it's a pretty cutthroat environment? What advice would you have for people who are in sales, in law, in accounting, in whatever, who are listening going, but Bob, like it's a pretty ruthless world in here. What, how would they do that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I totally get that. I mean, I literally deal with crooks for a living. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a bad living because I do it for nothing. Um, but I, I always think of stories. It said Jesus never spoke to anybody without telling him a story. And it's not because I'm Jesus. I just want to be like him and I yeah. can understand my world better by an analogy. And I've sailed uh, across the Pacific to Hawaii two times. And uh, the first time I he did He drops it, in casually. Yeah. No, no, Go no. on, keep going. I was broke. So we, uh, somebody needed their boat taken from Hawaii to San Francisco. I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Which ends the pointy end. And so, <laughs> so I remember pulling out of the Ala Moai Marina and glancing back at the palm trees and all that. And I saw this piece of kelp trailing behind the boat. I didn't give it any more thought. I sailed that boat 1,800 miles. And as we're going under the San Francisco Bridge, I look back to see the bridge. Same piece of kelp. (laughs) (laughs) I had dragged a piece of kelp across the Pacific Ocean. And I think it killed some speed. Uh, (laughs) What happened is that 
the kelp got wrapped around the keel. And the keel is actually serves a really important purpose. It yeah. keeps the boat upright. It makes you go. Um, but it also is a magnet for kelp. And I think sometimes our busy lives, uh, some of the stresses that you have in work, you got the keel. It's the economic engine. It makes it work. But it's also a magnet for kelp, the things that will slow you down. And what you do to get the kelp off the keel, you stop the boat. <laughs> <laughs> You can actually turn the boat into the wind, drift backwards, and all the kelp will fall away. And I think that idea of finding a quiet place to get a little rest uh, that Jesus talked about in Mark, I just, I think there can be some benefit to just slowing down a little bit, like uh, quieting it down. Um, uh, when I was college and I scraped together enough money to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, I went with three buddies and one of the guys had the keys to my car. And so I was shouting to him, like, uh, do you have the keys to my car? Because I needed to leave. And uh, the other guy thought we were in an argument. We, we weren't arguing. I was just trying to get the keys to my car. But it, the room was so loud that it sounded like an argument. And if I can analogize that to today, it, 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 the world is so loud. And it looks like we're having arguments when we're really just trying to communicate an idea. And so if we could slow it down, let Good. the kelp fall off. If we could quiet it down, go find a quiet place. If we could communicate what we need, we need to know like who we are, where we are, what we want. If we could just say who we are, not like what our driver's license say, but who we really are, where we are. I'm in a difficult marriage. I'm in a rough job. I'm in a wherever. And then just describe what you want. Um, what I need is a break. What I need is, so if we could kind of, self-prescribed to ourselves, but we got to kind of slow it down. We got to let the kelp fall off. The keel's not the problem. The kelp's the problem. And so you could think of these commonly, you've referred to them as limiting beliefs. Like what are some of the things that got wrapped around? The kelp's not a bad one trying to screw up my uh, trip, uh, but it ended up slowing me down. And I think we can uh, pause enough to do that. Just kind of take this big assessment uh, that we, we have the time to do. Um, and then to say, what are the things we want? I've been telling, we've been in, I bet 110 cities a year for the last seven years talking to people. And I remember praying from motel eight, uh, like if I could just get home and I feel like three months ago, earth leaned over the rails and said, what's your second wish? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm like, wow. So to be fully present where you are, I love it in the South. They say, be where your feet are. <laughs> so it, sometimes we're not where our feet are, right? If, uh, if you're listening and you've got one of these iPhones, uh -huh. <laughs> this is not your friend. Um, but uh, what you're doing, you're lying in bed, your eyes are closed, but you're not asleep. You're not resting. You're thinking about work. What I want you to do, get out of bed, get fully dressed, and then get back in bed. Because then you will realize that I'm actually at work right now. If you're at the dinner table and you're sending text messages, I want you to leave the dinner table, go get back, get out of your sweats, get in your suit and tie. Everybody else knows you're at work right now. You don't know you're at work right now. And so if we could have that kind of a, awareness about like where we are and what's going on and then just get real with that. No shame. Just, mm. like, just let's just say, let's just get accurate.
One of the things that's an inspiring arc for me with uh, the way I see your life, Bob, from what I know of you, and we, we've spent a bit of time together, is you saw that law practice as a means to a greater end. So again, whether you're pastoring a church, for those of you who are listening, or whether you're uh, running a firm and you've got success, often that becomes a uh, end in itself. You never really, when did you start to see your law firm as a ticket to something bigger? Yeah, I just started thinking of it as fundraising. Uh-huh. So just go like, come on, let's go do this thing. So it was a pretty good day job. But then- But started, was that early on? Like, did you have that vision from day one or did that happen like five, 10 years in? 61 now, I bet by 41, I was kind of, uh, my uh, love had gone somewhere else. I was mm. in other countries. So I started spending all this time over there and I would still pop in to make sure things were going okay. But by 46, 47, I was like, I'm kind of out of here. It's like owning a Baskin Robbins. <laughs> you know, I've had like, enough ice cream, right? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. By early fifties and I, if it had to do with the age of my kids too, yeah. that um, as they started growing up, I started realizing, man, I really want to uh, leave behind what would just work uh, and I wanted to do things that would last. And uh, I think pricing law is really honorable. Uh, most of the professions, like in bagging groceries, just yeah. very honorable way to uh, earn a living for the people that you love and all that. But my love had kind of shifted to saying, uh, I really saw these kids in these uh, war zones that weren't, were lis- losing out on the chance to get an education. So, um, so what we've been doing since then, uh, maybe... 18 years or so is uh, pivoting to starting schools in these countries and making friends with the folks that are in leadership in the countries. I don't know if you knew, but our most recent school has been in Afghanistan. The Taliban won't let little girls learn how to read and write. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because they're women, then that just chapped me. So we started flying into Afghanistan several times a year. We started a school for girls. <laughs> And we just load them up with books and get this. This is in the former capital of the Taliban. Wow. So it's, it just feels, uh, it feels really alive. But here's the message uh, to everybody listening. God isn't dazzled when you go across the ocean. He's wowed when you go across the street. Mm. He just wants you to do it right where you are. It sounds noble to go far away. It, it sounds like what Jesus talked about when a young lawyer like you and me said, what's the big deal? It's love God and love your neighbor right here. Hmm. And I want to be reminded about this. And again, God doesn't compare what he creates, but, but what he wants us to do is to be where our feet are. He wants us to be fully present, not distracted by all the things, not shouting over all the noise, finding quiet places and saying, who's the newest version of Carrie? Who's the newest <sighs> version of Bob? Hopefully a kinder, more respectful version of that, one of kindness and respect towards other people. And I don't always get it right, but I'm aiming to. You've challenged me a lot on that personally and through the the um, writing that you've done over the years. And I got to say, yeah, that's one of the joys of getting older for me is like, oh, how's this year going to be different? How's it going to be different? And yeah. I love the fact that you saw your firm as a way to fundraise for the kingdom and things that were really important. Some people have that gift, but they don't have the bigger aim. They have the gift of making money. They have the gift of success at work, whatever they do, 
but they don't have a bigger purpose. And that kind of morphs us into like Dreaming Big, right? Which is your brand new book. Congratulations on book number three. Is it number three? Yeah, that's a lot of words spelled correctly and a couple incorrectly. (laughs) (laughs) You got to know how to spell the word before you call it a typo. (laughs) (laughs) So Dream Big, Uh, man, Bob, I don't I don't think I've ever met. And I know so many people who would say this, somebody who dreams bigger than you do. And so I'm so excited that you're doing this. There are going to be people who would say, even those who might be introduced to you by this interview, I don't know how many of those are left, not too many, but they would say, oh, that's just Bob. Like who starts his own airline and who uh, just goes out and buys a camp and who goes and, you know, decides I'm going to educate women in Afghanistan in the former capital of the Taliban. And I'm going to go and teach a law school class in San Quentin. Like that's just Bob. What would you say to people who say, you know, oh, I, I could never do anything big with my life? Yeah, there's a neighbor that lives across the way, and uh, she's with Jesus now, but um, we got a a baby monitor for seven bucks, and she was living all alone, and and we've gotten to know our neighbors, and so she asked if we would be willing to listen in on her uh, just to make sure that she's okay, and so for seven bucks, I mean, you're doing something that's right in line with Jesus. Jesus isn't going to talk about uh, you know, schools in faraway places. He's going to talk about what you did with your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, he isn't dazzled by all that stuff. If it if it isn't about hungry, thirsty, sick, strange, naked, or in jail, it's just not going to be discussed. And so, uh, this woman, we heard a bump in the evening, and uh, she actually had uh, fallen over with this massive stroke. And we got to spend the last minute or two of her life with her. And uh, and you can do that for seven bucks Um, just because you ask somebody not trying to eavesdrop on your life. But why don't you turn that thing on when you want me to listen? Uh, If you need somebody uh, in the house with you and your advanced stage. So those are the things that I think we'll remember. It won't be the other stuff is off putting. Actually, that's why I drive a 2001 Suburban (laughs) 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 covered in an inch of Cheetos. Um, the, the, that stuff creates distance between people. So I cringe at that. What I want to do is be like really engaged where my feet are to say, can we do that one, one step of kindness? I, I've never given sweet Maria Daisy that had more than three petals on it. And the first time she looked at it, she's like, what? Like defective Daisy. And then she's like, oh, I get it. He loves me. He loves me. Not, he loves me. It's all- <laughs> Start. <laughs> Guys, get the pedal count right. But but one of the things that I want us to do is uh, just delight in the simple things. Like uh, Jesus heals people with withered hands. Uh, you and I, when we were uh, connected a little bit earlier, it was on a phone on FaceTime. Yeah. Uh, but I told you I can't handle on the phone because my hand has this quiver in it. Uh, now and I got malaria on one of these trips and <laughs> and ever since then I've just had this like some got disconnected not sure what it is um, but and so I'm just aware of my limitations it's not a big deal I don't self-identify as the guy with the shaky hand but I go like no I'm just aware of that and we would be like all over the map I'd be like whipping eggs uh, to be having this conversation not on the computer um, I, I've had this mark on my forehead. Yeah, yeah. Ever since I was a kid, I had a mark on my forehead. I was at a dermatologist. He said, you know, you don't need to have that mark. I'm like, 
really? I just thought I was like, and he said, no, like here, it took him two seconds. He just went, and like, I'm like, wow. And it wasn't a pride thing. It was just like some of the things we've been carrying around, some of the things we've been filling our pockets with, some of the shame that's been wrapped around our keel. I'm seeing a theme in my life that we can just deal with it. You don't need to make it complicated and go far away. Go across the street. Go take a greater interest in somebody else. Uh, I, I'm a Bible verse guy, but not everybody is. But but there's a great verse. It's in Philippians 2.20. It's, it's Paul talking about Timothy. He's a guy who takes a genuine interest in the people around him. You want to do awesome advocacy? Take a genuine interest in the people. You want to touch a lot of lives? Take a genuine interest in the, your neighbor across the street. Uh, and nobody will know you for that. You'll know you for that. Make mm. these requests known to God. A God who says, I know what you need to pray about before you pray about it. I think he's making your request known to you. Know what you want and then say it. Find the words. And I just think if we keep the right words in the thought bubble and we can find the right words to express to each other, we'll find our next way forward. Wow. Why do you think, Bob, that Christians seem so obsessed with comfort? I know I can sometimes, making everything predictable, comfortable, safe. Do you see that? And what would you, what would you say to that? Well, I think we gravitate towards that. I mean, stated differently, uh, we want to avoid pain. So that's right. the, the finger on the hot griddle. So you learn early on to avoid pain. And so sometimes if you equate vulnerability with pain, you say, like, if I was vulnerable and then that person told somebody else, that was really painful to me. It felt like betrayal. And so you make a rule for yourself. You'll you make this rule. I will never express that kind of vulnerability with anybody ever again. So we've all done that. We make these stupid rules. They're like the, the things that we write inside our cave walls, never be vulnerable. And I think that the process of our life and aging is going down the cave, like spelunking, turning mm -hmm. on the light and saying, what's been written on the walls of your cave by you? What was written by other people on your walls? You're not handsome enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not poor enough. You're, you're not whatever enough. And then sort out what's true and what isn't. And uh, I think, did you know this, that the, uh, the eraser was created 200 years after the pencil? I did Isn't not, no. Awesome? Yeah. So now that it's here, let's use it and let's erase some of the things that just aren't true. And if faith is a big deal for you, let, let Jesus tell you who you are, right? And erase some of these lies. And you need to identify what it is. You got to know the kelps wrapped around the keel. Mm -hmm. You got to just pause and to say, I'm going to rewrite some of this. I'm not going to, I'm going to revisit the rule that said, I will never go deep again. Uh, I'm going to rewrite the rule that said uh, that my weakness is going to be the first thing people notice about me. Um, people don't know about me. I'm like, it's super, super lonely, like punishingly lonely. Uh, and that's why I flew home every single night for 25 years. I, I just get super lonely being all alone. And then go enter a virus. Yeah. <laughs> And everybody has to be lonely for three months. I'm like, holy moly, or three years. Who knows? But but to get real with that, to say, how can I deal with that? What I dealt with, uh, uh, the things that are difficult for me, is by being fun. So yeah. I just go, 
I deal with my loneliness or insecurity, or if you're listening, you insert your thing here and figure out how you've dealt with that. Because it makes me not feel lonely. I feel like we're enjoying each other. I'm like, me and you are connecting. And so one of the things is to understand how you were wired from the factory and what are your little picadillos and how are you dealing with them? And then just make friends with that. Just get real with it and make the adjustments you need to make. But you got to do it from a position. You got to see the kelp to know you got to back down. You're, uh, you're good friends with Ian Cron, Ian Morgan Cron, who uh, has written some great books on the Enneagram. And he's an interesting guy. You would be uh, like a textbook Enneagram 7. Is that true? Yes. Flaming 7. Flaming yes. 7. Yes. <laughs> so I'm an 8 with a wing 7. What's your wing? Do you wing 6 or do you wing 8? 8. Got this That's what I thought. The yeah. guy that tries the death penalty against the witch doctor. And you're like, <laughs> you're mine. <laughs> you want some of this? <laughs> Stand up for justice. Uh, what are you learning about the difference between health and unhealth? And Ian's been on several times on the show, so we'll link to the episodes he's been in. Like, what is it like for you to be an unhealthy seven? What's it like for you to be a healthy seven? Oh, yeah. It would be uh, like the uh, front and backside of each wave. I would defer to all of you that know more about the Enneagram. But as I've reflected on it, the front side of the wave is like where all the action is. Ah. Like that's where all the surfing happens. You get tubed on the front side. But every wave has the backside, too. So that would be the unhealthy version. So unhealthy Bob is uh, kind of medicating his insecurity by activity, just like needs to be active, active, active. There's got to be the next 10 things going. And I've, I'm just learning a little bit at a time that I don't need to be that way. One of the things that I got, one of the first purchases for this camp, I found a 1962 Jeep Willys. And, uh, oh, I love this. It's an awesome car. I mean, it, it can climb hills like a billy goat, but here's the deal. It's got no brakes. <laughs> <laughs> So we go to the top of the tallest hill and for a seven, like this is like happy though. And we just go downhill trying to miss the oak trees. And, uh, and so what I don't want to be in my life, maybe if you're listening, if you can identify as being like all gas, no brakes. And so the backside of the seven is when you're all gas and no brakes, you don't pause, you don't back it down. You don't find a quiet spot. And so I've tried to kind of bake that into my calendar to say there's a couple months each year. I go to Canada. We bring the family. We just spend time together. We grow our own food. We make our own electricity off a glacier. We're just, we are, we were green before it was a thing. <laughs> what is that Bob like? What is Bob up at the cabin in the summer? Yeah. It's like a hippie without the high, the tie dye t-shirts. <laughs> So I uh, spend my time, I usually go and catch a fish in the morning and then I cut it into a couple pieces and I put that in the crab tracks because I'm not a big fish guy, but I love crabs. Uh -huh. And so I put them in the crab traps and then there's a lot of those up there because there's nobody fishing or crabbing. Then I usually go, we call it water logging. And uh, water logging is this, when a, a log, you know those big booms in Canada? Oh, yeah tugboat. Well, these uh, big cedar stems will get waterlogged. They'll drop out the bottom. They'll stay underwater for a couple days and then they go vertical and only the top four inches yep. is above the water. But it could be a hundred feet long down below the water. You do not want to hit that with a boat. And so I get the binoculars out and I look for seagulls 
All you need to find is one seagull sitting on top. Perched on the log. Yeah. Yes. Now there is $30,000 of wood in a hundred foot cedar log. And so I'm like, I'm going to send somebody's kid to Harvard on that. So I find the log and then I run out with my boat. And sometimes the log is only two inches around. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes it's three feet around. And so what I do is I spike it and I draw it, bring it back to shore. No boats get hit. And I got a big piece of cedar (laughs) sitting on the shore. What I want us to do is to do a little bit of that, scanning that in your life. Sometimes you only see four inches of something above the surface. You'll see some insecurity. You'll see some loneliness. You'll see a manifestation of that. Like this is what you're doing. This nutty thing you're doing is because there's an underlying something going on about a hundred feet of that. And uh, what I want us to do is just figure out where the birds are. What they'll do is they're going to land. There'll be little markers in your life. You'll start seeing some things and you go like, man, I think we need to do a little water logging here. (laughs) So that's how I spend uh, the mornings. And then in the rest of the day, I'm usually writing and just tickling kids, hanging out. (laughs) It's been really great. And always working on projects. I love projects. This lodge burned to the ground, which was a bummer. Um, uh, But we rebuilt it and it took uh, 210 weeks to build. I bought a 150 foot crane. Oh, Carrie, you have got to go talk about rope swing. (laughs) Wow. With a body cast and enough insurance. And so um, we stacked all the logs and we're done. And uh, that's incredible. Congratulations. But, but, but think for somebody who's listening, it was a career, it was a relationship, it was something in a faith community, it was a betrayal, and it felt like it all burned down. And uh, you can either uh, stare at the ashes or you can get busy and just say, let me be- build something uh, equally beautiful. Let me just say, I'm not going to have these setbacks be campsites. What I want to do is have a setback, learn from it, uh, but get busy. And to say, what's it? Don't you're not medicating your anxiety by that, but you just say, why was it important enough for me to spend? I spent 26 of the 61 years I've been alive building and rebuilding that lodge. Hmm. And it's like, what would you spend half your life uh, doing and doing again? That would be an indicator of something that's a big enough ambition that's worth all that time. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's really special, and I haven't been there, we look forward to one day perhaps being there, but uh, when we were at your 60th birthday party last year, and uh, it was was a great gathering, a night I'll remember for the rest of my life, but uh, Sweet Maria had the new table that was going to the lodge set up, and everyone at the party was encouraged to take a Sharpie and write their names and an encouraging word underneath that table. And at the very heart of that is people, which I think ultimately is a legacy you leave, right? I think that's the thing that's going to last. It'll be, say we're like praying for you. And what we're really doing is sweet Marie and I are lying on our backs underneath the table, looking at the names of people that have intersected our lives and what we've learned from them. And I think that would be a great, whether your table is, you know, something that you got at a yard sale or you got... At a fancy store, it wouldn't matter. But just when people come over, it's what they did in Acts 2 and 4. It said they broke bread together and they had things in common. And so having that moment where 
everybody's names. And we've had good guys, bad guys, and undecided. (laughs) (laughs) We've had some people on the no-fly list up there. I can get them into Canada. And they'll sign their names next to people that are sitting in high positions. Uh, But we don't have them in the room at the same time. But one of the things that I want us to do is to find these things in common. And sometimes it's just as simple as a, a hope and a name. Um, and so uh, we'll just look at your names and just remember friendships. I think we get to recreate that. That's slowing down. That's quieting, quieting the space down. It's letting the key, the kelp drop away. It's like actually resting at night, just not your eyes closed. There's so many stories in Dream Big, and it's an incredible book, uh, classic you, and yet it's there's a framework as well. So, I mean, part of what I love about you is every time – you know, I think, oh, I'm visionary. And then I hang out with you or read something you wrote or, you know, watch something you did. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not at all. And so you just kind of expand the balloon and you're like, oh, it could be so much bigger. But you've got a framework, too, for Dreaming Big. This is a series of workshops you've done that you're now uh, sharing in a more popular form through the book. If someone says, Bob, you know what, I just, I just don't dream or I dream too small. Could you walk us through some keys to dreaming bigger? One of the things I, I go again as a student, I'm a student of everything. Did you know when I, uh, when you go to land at an airport, you have to ask permission. <laughs> like it's a Oh thing. yeah. Yeah. If you're a pilot, right. You have to ask yeah, permission. Yeah. So when I talk to the tower, I'm so intimidated because I think I'll mess up stuff. So I always say I'm a student pilot <laughs> 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 and then they're nice to you. So it'd be like a student dater, student husband, student, you know, whatever. Student driver. I'd be yes. nice. Student lawyer. You could have a tag over you <laughs> as you walk in. But one of the things is to actually go as a student to these things. And we'll, we've done them for the Department of Labor. But we've also, get this, we invited 170 Afghan leaders to meet us in Kabul, Afghanistan, to go through this. And you know how many showed up? 170. <laughs> <laughs> it was so creepy. Yeah, the, the first day went awesome. You know what happened the second day? We got raided by the Afghan secret police because they heard that there's 170 uh, leaders here. <laughs> and so I, it was going great right up until the time it wasn't. One of the things that I want us to do, wherever your background is, a student, a teacher, a student teacher, a uh, a musician, whatever, is to say, what are your ambitions? Like, just identify what is it? Like, what do you want? And then to say, why do I want it? Mm-hmm. Like, check it, because if you want it to be popular, let's just say, I want to be popular. So just say, like, well, first of all, let's like drill down on that to whom? Like, what's popular enough? Uh, do you want to be popular to a stranger? Do you want to be famous with your family? Uh, do you want to, like, what are you looking for? And then ask yourself, why do I want it? Because it'll uncover, you see, like, I want a popular because I'm actually terribly insecure. Mm. <laughs> like, I'm looking for applause. And if you want applause, join the circus. But, but if you say, I want more faith, then join Jesus. Join the poor. Join people who are in their suffering. Find people with kelp around their keel. And don't tell them what to do. Remind them who they are. You are a wayfarer. You are going to sail across this ocean. Is there anything I can do to help you get there? Go Timothy on it. Take a genuine interest in their welfare. And you'll actually uncover some of your ambitions. So know what you want, why you want it. And then importantly, decide what you're going to do about it. 
There it is. Just instead of making it brain candy, like I want to like, you know, build a dam and give fresh water to a million people. That's awesome. But if you don't have a hundred billion dollars, you ain't built <laughs> a big dam, but you could go to Home Depot and for six bucks, you could get a faucet. You could give one person fresh water and then double down, just go two people next year, next week, whatever. But to find something, an action, like to just do it. And it's not because God needs your help. And I ask him every day if he needs my help and he gives me the same answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> he needs my heart. And so to say, what do I want? Where's that coming from? And then why do I want it? And then decide the action plan. I, uh, what, there's a gathering they do in London, uh, and they get a bunch of people in a place. And, uh, and so I knew I was going to be there. It was, uh, May 16th of last year. And so I wrote to the queen and I said, I'm going to be in London on the 16th. If you're in London on the 16th, I mean, like, let's have tea, right? Pinky's <laughs> at. And, uh, one of her ladies in waiting wrote back to me. She said, the, the queen is terribly sorry. She can't meet with you. <laughs> <laughs> I just sure it'll just tore her all up. But here's the deal for a dollar in postage and one envelope, I'm talking to Buckingham Palace. Yeah. That would be the difference between having like uh, ambitions. That's not a life ambition, but that was something happening in the moment. I would say get in contact, know where you're going to be and say, hey, can we make something interesting? Find somebody across the street who needs a baby monitor so you can listen in at their. Uh, it'd be creepy if you didn't let them know, but, <laughs> but so you could just be helpful to your neighbor. Like there's something beautiful about that. So I think our ambitions come in small, medium and large. So have a little of each. Mm. And again, knowing that God isn't comparing this, keep your eyes on your own paper. Bob, people have got to get the book. It's inspiring. It's mind bending. Every time we have a conversation, I feel like I'm on a roller coaster and I never know what hill is coming next and what twist and what turn and what corkscrew. And it's, it's just riveting. And um, here's where I want to close. What's one question you wish people would ask you that no one asks you? Oh, I think it wouldn't be just how you doing or what are you up to? Uh, but who do you see yourself becoming this year? Ah. Uh, forward looking. Tell me about the the next version. If it's really true that we're new creations every day. I met like, you know, new Bob six or seven hours ago. He woke up and I'm like, okay, new Bob. I've spent 61 years being old Bob. But somebody said, tell me the guy that you're becoming in the next year. Tell me about who he so wants. to. Who are you becoming in the next year? Grandpa. <laughs> that is happening now, isn't that, it? Yeah, that's been my ambition since junior high. I hadn't even gone out on a date. I didn't even know what girls were. But I saw what my grandparents did in my life, and I knew I want that. And so instead of like giving the world more information, I think I want to give the world more examples. And mm. so I knew I wanted to be a grandpa because I knew how my grandpa made me feel. And so uh, it happened. My uh, daughter had a beautiful little son, and and he knows one word, apple. And so an apple is an apple, but I'm also an apple. Sweet Maria is an apple. Everything's an apple because it's the only word he knows. And I think sometimes what gets us wrapped, wrapped around the axles, we just don't know new words. I want to find newer words to describe familiar ideas. And if we can do that in our faith, if faith is important to you, find another way 
to describe something, dig a little bit deeper, change the camera angle on it. And I think what you'll discover is more about your faith, more about what you really think. If I told sweet Maria, like, I love you, 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 I love you. She'd, she'd be like, dude, like that would be so I'm over that. Be like, so it would be better to give her a daisy that had three petals to say, this is just another way of me showing you that I love you. She isn't wowed by a defective daisy. She's uh, inspired because somebody took the time to find a new way to express an otherwise familiar idea. And that's the guy I hope I'm turning into. I want to continue to find ways to express that. And and I, I just knowing that we're in this thing together, Carrie, I mean, who flies from Canada to San Diego uh, to surprise a guy in his birthday? I mean, I'll just that those kinds of expressions of love. It just was just over the top. I want to make those kind of memories for other people this year. Tell me about your grandfather. Oh, he was a fireman. He worked in San Francisco on the on the docks and he worked the graveyard shift for 45 years. But get this, he never put out a fire. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if he knew how to. Um, but you know what he knew? He knew how to love me well. Mm. Uh, my grandmother was the same way. She was never got a driver's license, had a three-wheel bicycle she drove around town in. And every year, uh, uh, they would surprise me with something else. And one year, I, they, I got a room in their house. Oh, they wow. said, this is your room. And what, what was unique about that is every time they used the room for any reason, they walked inside, they put a nickel in a drawer and they called it room rent. And so I was like, I felt so honored when I'd go over to their house, I'd run upstairs to see how many nickels were in the drawer. It wasn't about the cash. It was about them acknowledging this is my room and they remembered me and they paid me room rent. Now, fast forward it here at our house, Maria's like slipping $10 bills. <laughs> I'm like, stop it. <laughs> so, but what I would do is I take all my nickels, we'd go to Disneyland uh, once a year and I would buy my grandmother rock candy. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, like a gateway drug to diabetes, but it was this rock candy and she would, take this raw candy. She'd put one in her mouth and I'd say, it's candy. She's like, I know what candy looks like. This is a rock. And go like, no, 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 no. Try it. Try it. She'd put it in her mouth and she'd act as surprised as she was the year before. And she'd say, this isn't a rock. It's candy. <laughs> she made me believe I was the most amazing, the splendiferous creative guy ever in the whole world. And I think that's the role that I want to play with this little kid that can only say the word Apple. I want to make him know that he is the most creative, amazing kid ever. His vocabulary is small, but he's nonetheless, we're going to already start paying him room rent. We have a crib upstairs. And when Marie and I go in, we put little nickels in there. And I think that kind of, if we can pass on those traditions, if we can value other people in that way. That's the guy I want to be. You know why we flew down to celebrate your birthday? Uh, well, largely, we love you, but uh, Sweet Maria invited us. And uh, that uh, is the best. And when, and I think that's what this book is, I think. And in so many ways, that's the role you played in my life. It's an invitation to something bigger. It's an invitation to dream. It's an invitation to do all of that. So Bob, on behalf of all leaders who uh, know and love you, thank you. 
your gift. Oh man, so grateful to be in this worldwide family of friends. And I just hope if you're listening and something resonated that Carrie had to say, or if you were thinking something along the way that you'll find a wide spot in the road, write yourself a note, but then actually do it. Actually make the call, send the text, do the thing, do something that would be courageous for you. And, um, and then just watch what happens. God'll do something really surprising with that. If they want to know more, books available everywhere. But if they want all things uh, that you're doing these days, where can they find you online? Yeah, so we uh, had a hidden uh, website. It's called bobgoff.com. <laughs> we tried to make it really sneaky, which is actually my email address as well. So um, one of the things that I hope that people will do, particularly in this difficult time, if, if you do need a friend, if you need something, that we wouldn't be going this thing alone. I just want to make sure that we that we acknowledge the people that would be listening to this might be going through a difficult patch. And to just know, you got friends, you got Carrie, you got me, you can phone me. My phone number's in the back of every single book I've ever sold, which is pretty nutty. But one of the things that I want us to do is to stay connected to one another. And thank you for making this podcast a way for us to stay connected. I'm one of your listeners. I'm the subscriber. Bob, you're one of the good ones. What a joy. Thank you so much. And it certainly will not be the last time. Thank you. Told you that was a tour de force. Was that not? I mean, did we not go all over the universe in that interview? And and like I said to Bob, um, man, every time I get together with him, I think I I just I just do not dream big enough. So his new book is out. It's out today. You can pick it up and uh, I'm sure it'll be on a bestseller list uh, by the time this thing airs. And of course, if you want more, we have transcripts. Uh, so you can get all of that at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 349. Hey, I'm doing a what I'm thinking about segment. And uh, I was thinking about what do, what do I want to talk about? And like Bob stretches me every single time. I remember the first interview I did with him uh, long before Love Does comes out. And it was before I was doing this podcast. And I thought, I've never heard a guy like this. This is, this is incredible. And so what is it that great leaders do that others don't? I'm going to share that with you in just a moment toward the end of the podcast. In the meantime, I want to share with you what's coming up. This is one of those episodes we put on hold in the spring because of coronavirus, and now it's back. Ryan Hawk is someone I really admire. And I we get asked pretty much every week, sometimes every day, it's like, how do I start out in podcasting, in life, in leadership? Like, I don't have any influence. I don't know anybody. How do I build like the career I want? Ryan Hawk is a master at that. And he has interviewed some of the top names in leadership, including Jim Collins, Seth Godin, Liz Wiseman, General Stanley McChrystal. And he started with nothing. And we talk all about that and so much more. Here's an excerpt. Sharing, first of all, some honest flattery. So honest, um, something kind about them with specificity. So that shows that I have taken the time to learn about them. I like you because of X. Carrie, I like you because you're the combination of a pastor, attorney, and podcaster, and course creator, and you've written books, and they have impacted me in this way. Whatever maybe it shows, at least I've, at minimum, I've read your bio, I have an understanding of what you do, and maybe get, take it a step further as to why that's impacted me in a positive way. Then I will shoot for some sort of uncommon commonality. If it was you and me, Carrie, we're both podcasters, we both care about leadership, we both care about helping people, something along those lines. Okay, so that's next week on the podcast. We got Ryan Hawk also coming up. Subscribers, you know, you get this automatically. Uh, 
Levi Lusko is going to be on a few times this summer. We've had a number of life-giving conversations. So I'm like, yeah, let's just put them on there. Nona Jones, Henry Cloud, Joe Saxton, Darius Daniel, Sam Collier, uh, Danielle Strickland, and so many more. And I've got like this long interview with Gordon McDonald coming up this September. And I only listen to the podcast that I subscribe to. So make sure you subscribe and you can do that for free. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Lead to Win with Michael Hyatt and Megan Hyatt Miller. I would encourage you to do that right now. Uh, they're a great podcast. It will help you win in life and win at work. And check out the brand new offer from ServeHQ. Get a free, no obligation, 14-day trial. Keep your church together when you can't be together using their software. And uh, you can do that at servehq.church and start your free trial today. Okay, now on to what I'm thinking about. Well, uh, I, I get together with Bob and I'm like, what makes him so amazing? And again, having interviewed hundreds and hundreds of leaders, uh, I sat down and wrote some of the qualities and characteristics that I see repeating again and again. And I think uh, most, if not all of these are true of Bob. Uh, number one, talk less, listen more. Bob's a great listener. He listens to people, he listens to well, all kinds of people. And when I'm in the, in, the, in the presence of a really great leader, like for example, Ravi Zacharias, who passed away a few months ago, uh, I, ju I just could not believe how much he listened and how much he just took an interest in me. And uh, that you would think, you know, that, that leaders just talk and talk and talk and talk. No, but they really care about you. And uh, you never learn when your mouth is open. And so, listen, if you want to become a great leader, talk less, listen more. Uh, and I find when you listen longer than most people listen, you hear things most people never hear. And to me, a good interview is when I talk a little less and listen a lot more. Okay, number two, what do, I, what, what do other uh, great things leaders do? Ask questions instead of giving answers. Uh, I've seen this in Bob. He asks just incredible questions. And questions will break down your paradigms and your assumptions. Uh, and great leaders just rush to a question far more often than they rush to an answer. Uh, number three, uh, great leaders often stay quiet about themselves. They don't walk in the room. Like I had to work so hard in this interview uh, to get Bob to talk about his law practice. You probably noticed that, right? And he just, he just doesn't want to talk about it. He'll talk about other people. He'll talk about his neighbor. He'll talk about Sweet Maria. He'll talk about his kids. He'll talk about Afghanistan. But they stay quiet about themselves. And I see so many leaders who are leading so much less online talking about themselves all the time. Um, I, I just find when you meet a leader who tells you how great they are, they usually aren't. Uh, great leaders honor others, not themselves. Uh, okay, so fourth characteristic of great leaders that I've seen in common in all the conversations I've had, they connect instead of climb. A lot of people talk about how do I climb the ladder? How do I, how do I get to where I want to go next? Well, um, you know, people like Bob, they just connect and it doesn't matter. They don't care about your title. They're just like interested in you. And, uh, the, the, you know, I think you've heard this maybe because I've interviewed Bob several times in many different formats, including on this show. But I've been sitting with him either in the green room or on the front row getting ready to speak at an event, a live event. And like when he puts his phone number in a book, uh, I mean, he takes like up to 100 phone calls a day and he's just like, hi, who's this? Oh, yeah, Sam. Great to meet you, Sam. Yeah. Hey, I'm just about to go on stage. Can we talk a little later? And like he actually takes those phone calls. I'm like... I don't even know how he does that. But anyway, he really connects with people and he cares about people. And, you know, just think about that, connecting rather than climbing. And the final characteristic, and this is huge. This is so true of Bob. Contribute 
rather than criticize, contribute rather than criticize. Uh, we were chatting uh, before we flipped the mic on and he said, you know, he has thoughts that are not very encouraging, but he lets them stay in his head and he tries not to uh, let them slip out on social media or into his discourse with other people. So uh, I, I find that criticizing versus contributing is almost binary. And uh, if you look at social media, you look at how a lot of leaders live, they just criticize, criticize, criticize. You can't build yourself up, I'll tell you, by tearing other people down. And so when you're ready to criticize, uh, flip it and say, how can, uh, how can I contribute instead? And maybe that's buying a $7 monitor and like making a difference in someone's life as Bob talked about. So anyway, those are some principles. I'll tell you, this was fun. This was like trying to tame a stallion, which is impossible. Uh, but so great. And I look forward to many, many more years of great conversations with uh, my friend, Bob Goff. So hope you enjoyed this one. Thank you so much. We're back with a fresh episode next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.